Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And in this episode, we are going to share with you an interview that I did with Mocha Jasmine Johnson, a candidate for the Georgia House of Representatives in House District 117. We talked with Mocha about her views on the budget and on issues of voting rights. But today's discussion with Mocha is also part of a larger discussion we're having on the podcast this week about demonstrations in response to the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the demands demonstrators are making of policymakers that they take action to reduce and eliminate police brutality. Mocha is an activist in the Athens area and the founder of the Athens Anti-Discrimination Movement, and she actually led a demonstration in Athens while demonstrations were going on around the country. So we were interested in her views as an activist and as a candidate about solutions to this problem. You'll also hear portions of this interview in our main podcast this week. But without further ado, let me turn it over to my discussion with Mocha Jasmine Johnson. All right. Joining the podcast is Mocha Jasmine Johnson, a candidate for Georgia State House District 117 and the co-founder of the Athens Anti-Discrimination Movement. Mocha, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Um, so you are a candidate for the state house, uh, and we would love to talk about your campaign here in a second. But before we begin, let's meet you. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and why you're running for the state house? Um, well, I am. Um, my name is Mocha Jasmine Johnson. I am an educator, mother, and activist, um, an entrepreneur. Also came to United States of America when I was six years old. So I'm an immigrant originally from Jamaica. About four years ago, I would say, yeah, about four years ago, um, for the first time in my life, I got tired of sitting on the sidelines and I jumped into activism. Um, the reason that I jumped into activism is because um, I live in a small town called Athens, Georgia, and there was an incident that happened in our hometown to where one of um, the bars downtown, one of their staff members decided it was a great idea to publish a drink or place a drink on their menu called the Nigarita. When that drink, um, when it came out in the newspaper because they tried to get the, the menu printed, I started to wonder where exactly do I live and if I wanted to continue staying here. Um, so instead of packing up my bags and leaving, um, me and my husband talked and we decided to take action. That was our first um, time of jumping in and trying to do something um, dealing with injustices around racial injustice and those type of things. And it was our first time actually, you know, organizing a rally because of our background as um, business owners and event producers, we already had organizing skills. So we just took those skills and put it towards um, making, you know, trying to make a difference, political action. Um, on MLK Day in 2016, that's when we had our first um, rally to address the incident with the downtown bar owner. And over 500 um, people turned out to our first protest. Since that time, I have continued to fight for criminal justice reform um, and the school to prison pipeline for economic justice and have made some progress within our community. But after um, 2018, 2019 um, election year and new people taking office and, you know, in the state house, our representatives seemed like they were trying to turn back the hands of time. 
It was just some of the bills that they passed were um, highly concerning because it would compromise the work that we were trying to do on a local level. Um, one of those things is when um, they passed the abortion bill, you know, making it more difficult for women to choose what they want to do with their bodies. And then the next thing that really struck me was the fact that, you know, we've been fighting on a local level to have the monument move, the Confederate monument move to another location. And then our current representatives passed a bill making it harder for you to move it, not even difficult for you to move the monument, but if anything happens to it, you can end up with a felony. But they didn't pass a hate crime bill. The hate crime bill had a harder time going through the House and, you know, being able to it passed through the House, but it wasn't passed through the Senate. So it just made me question what are who who are they representing? Who are they working for? We still, you know, people out here still living without health insurance, over 1.2 million people within the state of Georgia. Within Athens, within Athens alone, people are working two to three jobs just to make ends meet. Affordable housing is not, is not non-existent in our community almost. And these are everyday people that just want to live. And from the work that I've, I've been doing on, on ground level, I've met a lot of good people from all backgrounds, different um, class levels, and we have common issues. A lot of people have the same common issues, whether they're struggling economically or they're, they're, they disagree with the current state, dealing with even with police brutality. But we have a lot of commonality that's not being addressed by our current state representatives. So I decided that I was going to um, step out on faith. I prayed about it, and I felt that it was the best thing for me to do instead of waiting for someone to do the right thing or waiting for them to um, to to have empathy for us. I decided I'm going to run for office because I care deeply about my community and about the people that I have connected with, and I really want to see people live a quality life all across the board, irregardless of their skin color, irregardless of their economic status, people should be able to live a quality life and have options to do so. And um, I don't think that our current representatives are trying to make a more cohesive, equal world or community for the people that they represent. So that's why I decided to run for office. So cities across Georgia and the country have been the site of nightly demonstrations against police brutality for over a week now. Nearly 1,500 people attended a demonstration in Athens on Saturday, a demonstration that you and the Athens anti-discrimination movement organized. In your, in your view, what message do you hope that policymakers and the public hear from you and other activists on this issue of police brutality? We hope that they start to listen and really understand that what is happening, the culture that is happening within um, the criminal justice system is not beneficial to black and brown people or to poor people. Um, We want them to change the laws. We want them to hold police officers accountable. I understand not every cop is a bad cop, but if you don't get the bad apples out, and you allow them to continue um, to be able to mistakenly, however they want to say, kill somebody, um, and they're not being held accountable to where they have to go in front of a judge and jury. The process, the legal process is unbalanced, and it's not fair. 
to black and brown people. And if they, if America wants peace, then they must give us justice. That's what I want them to understand. We're not going to stop. Whether I, whether I win, whether I lose, there's a lot of people in this country right now that's sick and tired of the same old system. So we have to make police officers accountable. They're human beings just like anyone else. And they have to be held accountable for what they do. And that's what we want them to hear. We want the laws to change. We want a more restorative system as opposed to a punitive, militarized police system. And I hope that they will listen because I don't think that the protesting and some of the things that are happening in America, they're not going to stop anytime soon. They're not going to stop because people are really tired. I mean, even during COVID and um, people are coming out and protesting. There was over 3,000 people in downtown Athens, and it was very diverse. And it's a new generation, and people are sick and tired of the same old system. I'd like to talk a minute here about the role that activism and demonstrations can play in changing policies. You know, frequently on this show, we think about changing policies through the policymaking process, introducing legislation, getting votes for it to pass, getting it implemented by whatever government is in charge. But I've been really struck in the last week by the way in which demonstrations in Georgia and in cities across the country have really focused the conversation on demands that are being made by people who have to live under these policies and who are too often Mm -hmm. mistreated under these policies. Can you reflect on what impact you think activism should have on the policymaking process and what kinds of successes you and other organizers are having in this moment with these rallies? I mean, um, the role that I see activism play, it makes politicians listen or, or, or it puts pressure on the politicians to try to um, do the right thing. Because sometimes you see them, they, they, you, now you hear everybody talking about reparations. Or you hear them, you hear different people saying George Floyd incident was wrong or um, the murderers for Ahmaud Arbery should be held accountable. And those are politicians. They're saying this now. But if it wasn't for activists that were villages in what they were doing, the work they were doing, saying that this enough is enough, then a lot of those cases, you know, might not have been heard by the general public. The district attorney had already let Ahmaud Arbery um, murderers like get off, you know, in a sense, until activists got involved and started saying this is wrong. And I think that politicians need to realize if these are a majority of a pe- of people asking for the same thing, why aren't they trying to listen? In me saying all of this, it's just time for them to start to cater to the people that elected them that help to get them in office or they need to start listening to the activists that are sick and tired because at the end of the day, that's how it it seems to work. It's like a a political leader will make these policies and get away with whatever they want to get away with until an activist or someone in the community call them out. And then it's a shame because if one person sends an email or makes a phone call and say it's wrong, they don't listen. Then two people do it. They don't listen. But then when a hundred people start doing it, then they start squirming and trying to, you know, make changes or making a little tweet saying they care. But do they really care? 
So sometimes they end up putting these things on their platforms because they're trying to get votes. You know, so I mean, it, it's just it works. It works. I think activists is very important, and people need to speak out and use their voices and hold their their political leaders accountable. They should no longer just roll over and and continue to take office. And if somebody wins that you did you do not want to win, they still are your representative, and they should be held accountable. So you should reach out to them and let them know what it is that you're that you're pleased with or you're not pleased with and what it is that you want because they work for the people but it seems like it has changed over history so let's talk a little bit about some of the ideas and the policy changes that you would like to come out of this situation you know should you get elected to represent house district 117 you'll bring some of this activism experience into a policy making role what reform ideas to Increased police accountability. Do you do you support and would work to enact under the gold dump? Well, if I get elected, I will still push to pass the House Bill six um, six thirty six, the Use of Force Act. We also need to collect data um, with all the police brutality that's happening, so we can kind of track it and see what needs to be done in those areas. Um, I definitely will push for them to repeal the Georgia Citizens Arrest Law because that is what protected um, the two men or the three men that um, basically killed Ahmad Arbery, whether it's they one videotaped and the other chased, but they were all involved in the act. And I will also push for them to adopt House Bill 426, which is an inclusive hate crime law um, and includes the LGBT community, because even though some states have passed a hate crime law, it still doesn't um, cover everyone. So I just want for everyone to be able to feel safe and to know that people are going to be held accountable for the actions that they take when it comes to um, race, discrimination, police brutality, or hate. And police accountability is just one piece of the puzzle when it comes to the ways in which the criminal legal system disproportionately impacts Black Georgians. What reform ideas do you support for other parts of the system? I know you mentioned a a hate crimes law in this context, but what about, uh, you know, the practices of courts and prosecutors or other pieces of criminal justice reform that you support? I mean, right now, especially what I, I'm, especially what happened with Ahmaud Arbery, I just looked at how much power a district attorney has. And they need to also, we need to change the way we um, basically, how much power they have in the decisions that they make. So there has to be some type of accountability there for the district attorney as well. If you, whether you know it or not, in Athens, um, the, what happened with the race in Athens is that it, someone was running for DA. And um, the, what happened with Governor Kemp is that he appointed somebody. So literally, there's no race. So we don't even get to choose our district attorney. Um, it, there's just so much going on politically that the system in itself just needs to be amended. We need to look at it. We need to look at the roles that judges play, the powers that they have. We need to look at the power that even like, like let's say the chief of police may have in, in, in um, each community. We need to look at the power, who has the power and, and the account of, who are they accountable. And we need to change the approach. And we need for the judges and the DAs to take more of a restorative approach before putting down some of these harsher laws, um, decriminalizing marijuana, because that is something that causes a lot of black and brown people 
are, are poor people or different types of people that end up in jail. But some of the laws that, are, that cause people to end up in jail for a long period of time, as opposed to giving them a more a second chance. So we need to look at the criminal justice system in many ways. Um, I, I don't remember the name of the House bill, but they passed one <clears throat> recently. And um, part of that bill is relating to gang acts. So if a group of kids are, you know, walking down the street, they end up getting into an altercation for whatever the may, reason may be, they might fall under the gang act because they're in a group of five or more. This is not trying to restore the system. So it needs to be looked at in many different angles from the judges, the district attorney. And, <clears throat> and I know that it's not just on the police because all of them play a role in the, in the outcome from the time of the arrest to the time they go to court, they come out dealing with the probation, the probationary system. So there's a lot of different nuances that I'm starting to really understand that needs to be addressed because they're intertwined. And that's what is like the oppressive state that keeps the, the, criminal justice system like under an oppressive state. Another piece of this reform agenda that I've heard about from activists this week is this idea of shifting funding away from police functions and towards public programs that seek to ensure that people have their basic needs like housing and healthcare and nutrition met, and to actually reduce the role of law enforcement in dealing with the effects of poverty does that kind of framework, shifting money from police to other social programs, does that kind of framework fit in your view of what needs to be done? You know, do we need a new vision of who serves as a first responder to deal with issues of poverty in our state? I think that um, police officers, uh, I found a model a long time ago, and they, it was like a social responder. They took that more, that approach more as opposed to, you know, just going in there and, you know, just telling people what to do. So it's more of a combination of an officer that has a social worker type skills. So I do think that um, some of the funding does need to be shifted in other areas. But still, my main focus when it comes to um, criminal justice reform is the end of school to prison pipeline. So one of the ways that I believe also outside of um, defunding the police is like start with the schools start with the schools. We've been trying to get the officers out of the schools. If they were able to take officers out of the school, then you can kind of see how the model will work when it comes out into the community. So I'm definitely um, for defunding and shifting the, the income somewhere else, but I want, I want to start in the schools first. Um, I don't want to get distracted on uh, trying to pass something that a whole community has to adopt. If we start adopting it in the schools, the parents start getting used to it. The kids start getting used to a social response type officer. The community starts getting used to it. We start fading the fading officers out and kind of changing roles as they go. Uh, but that is definitely something I'm into. But I want them to start with the schools first. And I do not want us to lose focus on, um, on the youth and how the criminal justice system impacts the youth. Because that's the easiest place that we can remove the officers, put in more social workers, take the funding that was used to have officers throughout the school, put it towards more resources and activities that the kids can do. Um, and even down to the t-shirts, the teachers that need more support, have social workers, have psychologists, clean out the school with um, law enforcement, and then go into the community and do the same thing phase by phase. 
Now, do I believe in a world without police officers? I'm not fully there yet. Is, is, is that the end all to our problems? I, I can't say that because not all officers are bad. Some people took the oath because they truly care about protecting and serve. But because of the flawed, racist infrastructure that we have, it's very difficult for you not to cause harm. So one hurdle to greater investments in public services in this state has been a pretty stingy state budget. Georgia still spends less per person than we did before the Great Recession on state services. We're entering another budget crisis caused by the COVID-19 pandemic's impact on the state economy. If you were in the legislature today, how would you like the legislature to address the budget challenges that this state is facing? That is a pretty good question. <laughs> that is a really good question. I've been reading and seeing how they um, how they break down the budget. I think more than anything right now, I would really try to make sure that everyone has health care coverage and to figure out how to expand the budget so that everyone is covered. Because I know there's different models and different forms on how, you know, you can make sure everyone has health care I also would like to see uh, um, what you what would you call it right now? I've been thinking about this a lot because we're already struggling poverty wise um, within some of the districts that I represent. Um, we have high poverty numbers and I can't imagine what they're going to be like. So um, be like when whenever I take office or if I take office. So there has to be some kind of economic relief and some of the budget or the surplus budget should be going towards economic relief for people that are still going to have to deal with um, the impact of closures due to the impact or, or lost their job. So I'm making sure that there's enough, um, there's enough funding there for healthcare um, and making sure that there's some type of economic fund or relief in place to help people that are dealing with this crisis coming out of COVID. But there is, it's, it's just different right now with how uh, when I first went into it and thinking, you know, how money should be spent and used, used you know, um, because with the crisis that we're dealing with, people are never going to be the same financially. So I, I, and I just think about that all the time. That's a good question, but a difficult one for me to answer. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's on my mind when I'm thinking about that is, the choices that the state legislature makes in terms of the revenue they raise. I mean, it's troubling to me looking at some of the proposals that are out there that at a time when we're in a pandemic and, and in this crisis that the state would rather cut, you know, services for like crisis mental health oh, services yes, or things yes, like that. Yes, yes, I did see that. And did that hurt? Like even with accountability court, I couldn't believe some of, yes, you're right. Some of the things that they were cutting the budget on, it's going to make things worse. That's what I feel. But you're, you are correct. I did. I do remember some of the things that I see. I saw that they were cutting budget. And it just made me ask, why? Why are you doing that? And especially now that we're dealing with the pandemic. So I know that accountability court was one of the big things because they were saying that it works. And many other things that they cut as well. And I can't remember them all. Um, so shifting to voting rights here. So you've you've previously served on the Board of Elections in athens Clark County. So I imagine you might have a sense of the challenges that local elections offices are facing as they're trying to administer an election in the middle of a pandemic. 
Um, I, I don't believe you have a primary challenge, but Georgia is having their primaries on Tuesday. And of course, we're all looking forward to the elections in November. What concerns do you have about people's ability to exercise their right to vote amidst this pandemic? I'm highly concerned because we already had issues before with our voting system. And, um, you know, when I was on the board of election, I had voted um, when, well, let me back up a little bit. When I was on the board of elections and we were getting these new machines, there were so many issues around the new machines. We were wondering if they're going to be able to roll out in time. Um, and so I was, I proposed for us to have a plan B to, for us to put a plan B in place. And that would be voting with paper ballots and also, um, a portion of the scannable portion of the, of the machines to where you could, um, send the paper ballots through. Well, um, our, our board voted for the paper ballots as a backup plan, or if the machines and different things weren't going to be ready. And, um, so basically, the state decided to sue us, <laughs> decided to sue athens Clark County because we changed. We did what we felt was best for our town. And th- that's what I have issues with. One minute, the state will say they want for the local entities to have enough power to choose, you know, what's best for their community. But there is a mismessage. Because they, it, when you're on a state level, you don't feel like you have the power to do what's in the best interest of your community. So I think that um, we have a flawed voting system. I'm concerned about the outcome for November, and I'm for sure concerned about the outcome for June 9th. There's been so much confusion from the time they moved the May 19th date. People are, you know, were confused. Then now it's June 9th and then the paper ballots and then they didn't explain that you could, you know, just scan it, email it or our our mail, um, send it back without a stamp. So I heard numbers where there was like, a, I'm, I'm not sure the exact numbers, but there was like millions that ordered the paper, paper ballots, but only a few thousand voted. But there's a huge gap. And so I'm just really wondering how it's going to impact um, this year's election. And I hope that um, I just hope that people make sure that they vote one way or another, whether it's they um, fill out the paper ballot, make sure they send it in or show up to the polls on the actual day. And I'm encouraging people to to do the paper ballot, um, the absentee ballot. Let me be clear to, to send in their absentee ballots so that it will keep them safe as well. But. Um, we'll see what happens. I just know that Georgia has a flawed election system. I believe that it's it's flawed. It's not perfect. And and um, by far, right before the end of this year, there was over 300,000 um, voters that were purged. It's just a lot. It's just back to back to back to back dealing with something in Georgia um, when it comes to the voting situation. So it's like you encourage people to vote, but then there's another situation that happens. You know, so... We just have to keep encouraging people to get up, get out and vote and pray that um, they send in their absentee ballots. Well, Maka, we really appreciate you joining the podcast today and sharing your views. Um, I know we've spent some time speaking about some of these issues related to police brutality, which is really at the top of the headlines right now. But before we go, are there any other issues you wanted to touch on? 
no, that'll be it. I just want to remind everybody to stay engaged and involved and make sure they vote, make sure they're registered to vote and make sure they vote. Well, for folks who would like to learn more about your campaign for the state house in House District 117, how could they do that? Um, they can log on or visit my website, www.moka, M-O-K-A-H-4, F-O-R, Georgia, spelled all the way out, dot com. So it's M-O-K-A-H for Georgia, dot com, Mocha for Georgia. All right. Well, Mocha Jasmine Johnson is a candidate for Georgia House District 117. She's also the co-founder of the Athens Anti-Discrimination Movement. Mocha, thanks for joining the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That's our show for today. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Peach Pod. Thanks, as always, to our fantastic interns, Olivia Bauer, Peyton Childers, and Kelly Dobso for their help researching this episode. Until next time, take care, y'all.